And uh, we'll go ahead and as the parents are dropping their children off and getting back this way, we'll go ahead and open our Bibles and get started. If you are new here, I am Jamie and I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And if you're grabbing one of the black ones, you'll find Luke 7 on page 863. We're going to read 10 verses. I'm going to um, read the passage first, pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then work our way through this passage, making our way, as we do, uh, little by little through a, every book of the Bible, Lord willing. <laughs> Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse one. Hear now the word of the Lord. After Jesus finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through these words. And remind us, Lord, that these are not just words, but these are your words, the words of eternal life. Speak to us now and let us hear. Amen. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke. And it came to be. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. When he had said these things, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Say the word and let your servant be healed. More than anything else we need this morning, this is what we need, a word from the Lord. We need a word with authority, a word with power, a word that brings light out of darkness, a word which heals the broken, a word which wakes the dead, a word which comforts the downcast. This morning, what I offer to you is a sermon, but it is also a prayer. Say the word is my prayer. These your people, Lord, need to hear your word. The passage before us today and the one that we will consider next week, Lord willing, it's not actually about healing. It's about authority. It's about the one who has authority over sickness and disease, over life and death. When sorrows strip us of what to say, this passage reminds us that there is one whose word will carry the day. When affliction causes our knees to buckle, this passage reminds us of one whose knees never buckle. And he has issued us a promise. And you can put your full weight on it. Jesus Christ is the Word become flesh. He is God who has come to dwell among his people. He is the God of all grace and mercy. He has invaded this present darkness with his invincible light. And he is the one to whom we can cry, say the word. Here in the example of the centurion, we learn a good deal about faith. And we learn a good deal from an unlikely teacher. A Gentile, a centurion, a man of great wealth, of great authority, a man who has come to the end of himself, who has encountered a problem that no money or power has the ability to fix. And this man, as in all men, this man needs a word from beyond the reaches of this world. This man all men need a word from above, a word from the true and greater reality. We need a holy invasion of God's light. Say the word. The big idea this morning is this. Faith is humble dependence on the mercy of God, which appeals to Christ. In need. Faith is the humble dependence 
upon the mercy of God, which appeals to Christ in need. There are four things that we will learn about faith from the example of the centurion. First, we will learn that great faith has a high view of Jesus Christ. Great faith has a high view of Jesus Christ. Second, we will learn that great faith has a right view of self. Great faith has a right view of self. Third, we will see from the centurion's example that great faith cares deeply for others. That great faith cares, cares deeply for others. And finally, great faith in a great God will see great things. Great faith in a great God will see great things. So let's turn our attention again to verses 1 to the first part of verse 6 where we will see that great faith has a high view of Jesus Christ. Let's read again. After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, Jesus entered Capernaum. And there was a centurion there who had a servant who was sick to the point of death. The servant was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And verse 6, six says, And Jesus went with them. The Gospel writer Luke seems to want us to connect what Jesus has said in chapter 6 with the events that are going on in chapter 7. On the last Lord's Day, we spent almost our entire time together considering one word which appeared in verse 47. The word, everyone. Remember that everyone who comes to Jesus, hears his word, and builds their life on his word will be unshakable, no matter what disaster would come. In church, little did we know what disasters would come. Based on that passage and that promise, consider now, the example of the centurion. Jesus returns to Capernaum to home base. He's already done some miracles here, and the word about him is spread. If you remember from back in chapter 5, there was the example of that man whose friends cut a hole in Peter's roof and lowered him to the ground to be with Jesus. And Jesus looked at the man, forgave his sins, and then healed him of his paralysis. That happened in Capernaum. If you remember back to chapter 4, Jesus healed a demon in the synagogue. The same synagogue that this centurion built in Capernaum. And in Matthew's account of this miracle, he adds that the centurion's servant is paralyzed. And the centurion hears about Jesus who heals and has healed a paralyzed man. For the centurion, this is a problem that none of his money, none of his power could do anything about. He has a servant that he cares deeply about who is paralyzed, who is on the brink of death. Disaster has struck his home, and he sends word to Jesus. 
Now, centurions were Roman officials, military commanders. They're called centurions because they typically had command over a century of soldiers, a hundred soldiers or more. And these men were the backbone of the Roman military system. They were carefully chosen. They, they were men who showed great fortitude and management and skill and bravery. It was their job to keep the peace. It was their job to make sure the, the taxes were collected for Rome. And they were well paid. Roman, the Roman government took care of their centurions. One commentator I read said that they paid them 15 times the wage of a common soldier. And so this man is very rich. He is well respected. He is powerful. He's a man's man, an alpha type. He's a strong man who leads strong men. He is a man who knows something of authority. He's a guy who pretty well gets whatever he wants. He's rich. He's powerful. Whatever pleasure pleased him, it was at his fingertips. But this situation is out of his control. You wonder if he's already called in all the doctors that he knows, the best of the best. And they can't do anything. And the servant is dying and on the verge of death. And so the centurion is forced to search for a solution outside of himself. And so he sends a delegation of Jews to Jesus. And this is a rather strange thing. The, the Romans were the occupying force of the day. And Jews in those days were reticent to do the bidding of any outsider, let alone a Roman Gentile centurion. And, and also, how ironic is it that the elders of the Jews are sent to the Jewish Messiah to appeal on behalf of a Gentile outsider? Luke writes, these Jewish elders plead with Jesus earnestly. There is a special urgency in their request. And you have to be wondering, like, why do they care about the slave of a Roman centurion, whether he lives or dies? Well, we learn that this is no ordinary centurion. The Jews explain to Jesus, he's worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So not only is this centurion rich and powerful, he is also a man who cares about those who are under him and he is generous. He loves the Jewish people. He has funded the construction of the synagogue in Capernaum. But it is rather interesting how these Jewish elders describe this man to Jesus. He is worthy. Now, those are not the centurion's words. We know that from down in verse 6, which says otherwise. The elders add this. Because in their mind, he was worthy. Because look at all that he has done for us. He loves Israel. He's built a synagogue. He's worthy 
to have you do this for, do you see what they're saying to Jesus? You owe him. And look at all he's done for us. You owe him this healing. The word worthy carries the idea of scales. This centurion in their mind has done so much good that the scales are tipped in his favor. And so he deserves that God would do good to him. And they really need Jesus to heal this servant because, of course, the centurion is their generous benefactor. And if he is snubbed by a Jewish holy man, then maybe he'll stop being so generous. And so they're saying, he's done so much, Jesus, you owe him this healing. If I may interject and add this observation, this same sort of thinking is alive and well today. Not just out there in the world, but even in the church. We tend to look at situations in our life as measurements of God's favor, gauges on God's grace. When our life is good, it's probably because I've pleased the Lord and I've done the right things and God is blessing me. But when my life is not so good, well, it's probably because I've displeased him. I've done something wrong. My faith is too small. My Bible reading is too infrequent. My prayer is too rare. But this view of God is satanic. And we must banish every part of it from our minds. There is something that we look to to measure God's favor over our life. There is a gauge of God's grace and it is the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. That is the only thing to which you must look to know how God thinks and feels about you. That he sent his only son to die on the cross in your place to demonstrate the glory of his grace toward you. But in these Jews' mind, the scales of worthiness are tipped in the centurion's favor because he had done so much good and so therefore God owed him. The reality is that God owes no one anything. And no amount of good doing will put God in your pocket. And, and, and maybe you do look at your life this way as a set of scales that if at the end of the day, at the end of your life, as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then God will be good to you. But the Bible teaches that no amount of good deeds will earn you favor with God. That your sin, your breaking of God's commandments tipped the scales so far against you that a thousand lifetimes of Mother Teresa level good doing is enough to pay God back and balance the scale. And this is why Jesus came. 
Jesus lived the perfect life, the sinless life. He was the only one whose life had the scales of God, God's favor tipped in his favor. And to show the glorious grace of God to you, he went to the cross where he suffered and died in the place of sinners like you and me. So that all who turn to him in faith, the wrath of God is lifted off their life, placed on Christ, and Jesus' own good deeds placed on theirs. And so those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, they stand before God with the scales of God's grace tipped always in their face. I don't know if you heard me. Always. There are going to be more weeks like the one we just had. And that has to be written in your mind. That the scales of God's favor are tipped in your direction because of Christ. Always. And maybe, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. So trying to work all of this out. Friend, this is the only way to meet God. Turn to him today in asking him for mercy. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. And this church commits to help you, to teach you more about this, how the favor of God can rest on your life through Jesus Christ. The first sentence in verse 6 is precious. Jesus went with them. How the Lord might have undressed these Jewish leaders in their terrible theology. How unlike the Lord I am, I'd have been ripping into these guys with their legalism and their Pelagianism. Worthy? I'll tell you who is worthy. But thank God that Jesus is not like me. Because Jesus saw through this situation and he saw someone in need. He saw a Gentile, an outsider, and he came to him. And this is something that you need to know about the Lord Jesus. He is attracted to weakness and need. <laughs> it's probably his favorite thing. Lock this in your mind. It is one of the most simple and yet profound realities about Jesus Christ. And yet it is one of the most difficult for our hearts to believe. And it is this, that Jesus always moves in the direction of your need. Always. Big or small. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him. And then explains the reason. Because he cares for you. He wants them. <laughs> Sweetheart, bring them to me. Talk to me about it. Whatever your affliction, whatever your disaster, turn to Jesus. Send word to him. And I promise you, no one gets turned away. No one. 
the centurion showed great faith. And great faith has a high view of Jesus. And the second thing we learn is that great faith has a right view of self. This we can see in verses, the rest of six down to eight. When Jesus was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends, more people to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. So did the centurion have a change of mind? Like, why send a delegation of Jews to Jesus, and then when Jesus gets close, then send another delegation to Jesus saying, never mind? I don't know. But it seems to me that the more he thought about Jesus, the more he thought about the picture of Jesus being in his house, the more he understood his own unworthiness. And he sends his friends to Jesus saying, don't worry about it. Don't trouble yourself. I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. This is why he didn't come to him himself. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He's a sinner. He's not worthy to have Jesus in his house. And this man understood something about Jesus that the Jewish elders didn't understand. That no person, regardless of how much good they have done, how much generosity they have shown, how influential they are, how well-liked they are, none of them are worthy before the Son of God. Healing and God's favor is not based on the worthiness of man, but on the sovereign mercy of God. Healing and God's favor over your life is not based on your worthiness. It's based on the sovereign mercy of God. Say the word and let my servant be healed. There is one who is worthy. And it's not the centurion. And it's not me. And it's not you. There is one who is worthy and able to heal what has been broken in this world. In Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John sees God on the throne. And in the hand of God, there is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And a call goes out asking who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Who is worthy to set right what has went wrong? And a search breaks out. And the angels scour the heavens, and all those on the earth and under the earth are examined, everyone who has ever lived, and no one is found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And, Jesus, and John, the revelator, begins to weep. Can no one set right what has went wrong? One of the elders in heaven says, don't weep. One has been found. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll. And heaven breaks out in a loud voice saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
There is one who is worthy, and his name is Jesus. And somehow this glorious reality was understood by this heathen centurion. I'm not worthy, but you are. Say the word and it will all be made right. By you the heavens were made, and by you, by your word, my servant will be healed. It's interesting what the centurion says in verse 8. I too am a man set under authority. Which brings up some questions. Like, first of all, is, is this man comparing himself to Jesus? Like, you're under authority, I'm under authority, we're the same? Also, he says, I'm a man set under authority. Doesn't he, doesn't he mean like I'm a man in authority? Well, the centurion understands something about authority. He understands that authority comes from above. That his authority is not in him, it is in Rome. When he tells people to do this and they do it, it's not because he's telling them. It's because he has the authority of Rome to tell them. And he's saying that Jesus also carries authority from above. That Jesus has authority from God to tell sickness to flee, to tell darkness to dissolve, to tell the wind to cease, to tell the grave to give up its dead. He has authority. And this word authority has been used before in Capernaum. Back to the story I mentioned earlier of the paralytic being let down through the roof down to Jesus. The first thing Jesus says to that man is, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews were there and they grumbled in themselves and they said, you know, who has authority on earth to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, but I did this because that, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to the paralyzed man, get up. The centurion says, I have authority to tell one person go, and he goes. Another person come, and he comes. Another person to go do this, and they do it. I have authority on earth, but I do not have the kind of authority that is necessary to tell a sick person to be well. I do not have that kind of authority. I don't have the authority to tell a paralyzed man to stand up. I cannot call the dead back to life. I must appeal to a higher authority. And Jesus of Nazareth, you are that authority. Say the word. This remarkable man understood his limits. And so must we. That before we are to receive anything from above, we must acknowledge our need. And our greatest need is above our pay grade. No one has, found, has been found worthy on earth to forgive sins, to set right what has been broken. And so in a demonstration of glorious grace, God wrapped himself in humanity and became a man and redeemed man. Great faith has a high view of Jesus and a right view of self. And third, great faith cares deeply for others. The centurion, we're told, highly valued his servant. He cared deeply for him. He cared for those under him. He loved the Jewish people. He was generous to them. 
And so when his servant is at the point of death, he seeks help for him. The word servant in verse 2, it means slave. And the centurion uses a different word down in verse 7, a word which means boy. This is a young slave boy who's sick at the point of death. And his master turns to Jesus on his behalf. Now, you probably know that slaves in Roman society weren't highly valued. They could be abused and mistreated with impunity. They were viewed as property, as tools. One Roman writer recommended that you, you, know, you need to inspect your tools yearly. And if you find any of your tools that are broken and useless, you dispose of it as you would do with a slave. So if a slave became sick, it was not uncommon for him or her to just be discarded. But this man is not a common centurion. We're told that he highly values this servant. He has a high view of Jesus. He has a right view of himself, and he cares deeply for others. And so he sends his friends to get word to Jesus to heal this boy. And if you'll allow me uh, an illustration, an application... This is one of the wonderful things of church membership. Friends who go to Jesus on our behalf. Isn't it wonderful that the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, asked for his churches to pray for him? He told one church, you must pray for us. And I am so thankful, so thankful to those of you who have prayed this week. Know that God has heard your prayers and is responding to your prayers. Because if we are to be anything, church, we must be a church who prays. There's a lot of things that we can get wrong, but if we get that right, we got a lot right. I'm always encouraged by the one call that Pequa Baptist puts out for prayer requests, Linda Morris does a fantastic job of teaching me how to pray for these situations. I'm always encouraged when folks at Cornerstone will use the Church Center app and put prayer requests on there. And I know some, some of us here, we're, we're more private. We like to keep these things to ourselves, and I get that. I would just ask that you would make sure that keeping your need to yourself isn't actually driven by pride, by a fear of appearing weak before your church family. Because remember that where you are weak is where your Savior shines. And He has built you to need others. And additionally... These brothers and sisters have been commanded by God on high to carry your burdens with you. And so would you, in your pride, refuse them the blessing that would come from doing so? Or more than that, would you withhold thanksgiving that they might offer to God when he answers their prayer on your behalf? 
Paul requested to the Corinthian church that they pray for him. And the reason he gave them might surprise you. He said, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Many prayers, many thanks. Of course, God hears you when you pray for yourself. Of course, he does. And when he answers those prayers, you will thank him and your faith will be built up. And how many more people's faith would be built up and encouraged when you ask for prayer and they pray for you and then God answers and they see God's answer in your life. Because when these centurion's friends came home and saw the servant is well, they also saw who made him well. So I'm so proud of you when you request prayer in whatever means these churches offer. Great faith cares deeply for others. We must be a praying church. We must pray for one another. And I cannot give too much praise for God for the hours, for the hours of prayers that have been offered on their behalf this week. know that the Lord is using them. Finally, great faith in a great God sees great things. This is where we'll end. Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant. You know, there's only two times in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus marveled. Here, Luke 7, and the other places in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus marvels at the unbelief of those in his hometown, those he was, he was with, those he was in front of, those who knew him best, didn't believe in him. And here is this centurion who does not see Jesus. He's not with Jesus. He doesn't even consider himself worthy to have Jesus in his house. And he believes in Jesus. And Jesus marvels. Now, what amazes Jesus about the centurion is not how much power he has or authority he has or his philanthropy or his kind leadership or even his care of his servant. What amazes Jesus about this centurion is his faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. This man understood that Jesus possessed such an authority to simply say the word. Without proximity, without presence, without touching the boy, say the word and he will be well. That's great faith in a great God. That sees great things. Now, of course, our faith doesn't force our God to act, and our prayers do not change God's mind. Because if that were true, then God would have to change, He would have to improve Himself. But God is infinite, perfect, He does not change. We pray because He tells us to pray. And he uses 
the prayer of faith to bring about his sovereign will. He brings glory to himself in responding to faith-fueled prayer for his people. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he told us, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So ask him. This is because God is a giver. He loves giving gifts to his children. He wants your attention for the things in your life always on him. He loves when we come to him in need, and he loves to meet that need with himself. He loves it when we come and say, say the word. So make that your prayer this week. Say the word. Pray for those who are enduring hardships this week. Ask your heavenly father, say the word and send comfort. Say the word and bring healing. Say the word and bring light out of this darkness. Say the word and open the eyes to the glories of Christ. Let us all see his glorious beauty. Say the word. Let's pray. Father, say the word. Speak into the darkness of our hearts to the recesses of unbelief that reside there. Speak light and life. Revive our hearts. For many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord delivers them out of them all. It has been a hard week for our little fellowship. Say the word and send comfort. Hearts have been broken. Say the word and send healing. Loved ones have been lost. Say the word and be near. Speak when the pain is so loud in our ears. Come, Lord Jesus. Set right what has went wrong. Bring the day. Hasten the day when death will be no more and when there is no night. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Now, if you please stand to your feet. Our assurance of pardon this morning comes from Psalm 107, verses 19 to 20. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, hear now the word of the Lord to you. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction.